0: I'm Mark Caro and welcome to episode 47 of Caro Pop. Our guest this week is Vanessa Briscoe Hay, frontwoman of the brilliant, groundbreaking Athens, Georgia band, Pylon. Pylon's brittle, propulsive attack bridged the gap between that college town's more famous exports, the B52s and R.E.M., while carving out a space uniquely its own. Its music sounds as fresh and potent as when it was recorded four decades ago, and at its center is Briscoe Hay, whom Paste Magazine in 2018 named one of the 25 best front women of all time. The four Pylon members were University of Georgia art students, while three of them, including Briscoe Hay, worked weekend jobs at the nearby DuPont textile factory. The band took its name not from the identically titled William Faulkner novel, but the safety cones scattered around the factory floor. The industrial setting also informed Pylon's sound and design sense, as the band saw itself primarily as an art project. Guitarist Randy Bewley whipped up inventive circular guitar figures. Bassist Michael Lahusky offered one or two-note counterpunches, drummer Curtis Crow put the beat into overdrive, and Briscoe Hay delivered clip phrases in everything from a murmur to a feral shriek. She describes the band as a machine, and her job was to fit into the available spaces. That approach was in place right from the start with the single Cool, backed by Dub. Brisco Hay has a funny story about where the phrase we eat dub for breakfast comes from. The first album, Gyrate, came out in 1980 with Briscoe Hay imploring you to turn up the volume on the kickoff track. Quickly recorded music packs a punch, and the factory influence was felt in the lyrics with Briscoe Hay singing about her safety glasses and safety shoes in the human body. Uh In In driving school, Briscoe Hay shouts, where'd that song's buzzing come from? She explains. Briscoe Hay and her bandmates thought these songs were funny. Where the B-52s were campy and flamboyant, Pylon was deadpan and unadorned. The B-52s moved to New York City and took off. Pylon remained in Athens and didn't worry about career implications. Yet the B-52s gave Pylon a big boost, and Briscoe Hay tells how. Chris Stamey and Gene Holder of the DBs produced the follow-up, Chomp, recorded at Mitch Easter's studio and released in 1983. How did the band enjoy the more detail-oriented recording process for that album? Chomp took a sonic step forward and includes Beep, M-Train, and what would become their best-known song, Crazy. After that album's release, Pylon was building an audience. Then they broke up. Why would they do such a thing? Did they regret the move later? Briscoe Hay offers her perspective. A couple years later, R.E.M. covered Crazy as the B-side to the single Driver 8. This cover also served as the opening track of R.E.M.'s 1987 compilation, Dead Letter Office. Interest in Pylon surged, and by the end of the decade, the band had reunited and was opening shows for R.E.M. Pylon also released the ironically titled compilation Hits and a new album Chain but the band broke up again in 1991. They were grouped for some shows after that, but when guitarist Randy Buley died of a heart attack in 2009, that was the end of Pylon. Briscoe Hay still lives in Athens, and since 2014 has been playing in a band called Pylon Reenactment Society. They keep those Pylon songs alive and have been recording new material as well. In 2020, New West Records released the Pylon Box, a four-disc set and the first pressing sold out faster than anyone imagined. The label also reissued Gyrate and Chomp. How did this art project come to be a band with such staying power? Did Briscoe Hay imagine that people would still be seeking out these songs and that she'd still be singing them more than 40 years after Pylon began recording? Vanessa Briscoe Hay is down-to-earth and has a great sense of humor and perspective. She's also a -a one-of-a-kind talent. So turn up the volume on this Carol Pop episode. I appreciate you uh, talking to me for this.
1: Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: Sure. Now, are you, are you in Athens?
1: Yes, I'm in Athens,
0: Georgia. So you've, you've lived there for how long?
1: I've lived here since 1973, so uh, uh, mostly. So uh, what is that, like 49 years
0: yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and you were a student at the University of Georgia in art school, right?
1: Right. I came to uh, Athens in 1973 to attend the uh, University of Georgia art school, right?
0: <laughs> now, at the time you did that, did you see yourself as a singer?
1: No, not really. I mean, I sang in the chorus in high school, but I was never a soloist. And uh um really in high school I was kind of torn between going into music, theater, or art. And I chose art because I thought I was best at it.
0: What kind of what kind of art do you did you uh, concentrate on?
1: Um, well, um I paint out of my head a lot, but uh, sometimes I'll paint abstract and sometimes I'll paint from life. You know, it just depends on what I'm in the mood to do. Usually I use acrylic. Um, but uh sometimes I've been known to paint with oil or watercolor.
0: So that's what you were doing when you were at uh, University of Georgia?
1: That's correct. Yeah. I was uh I started out as uh art education major and then I Switched to drawing and painting because I had more in common with the uh, uh, drawing and painting students.
0: When you were thinking about music, um, were you thinking about music in terms of singing or something else?
1: Well, I played flute uh, from the sixth through the twelfth grade, and uh, I I briefly considered it because I I did enjoy it, but uh, I didn't even join, you know, the Red Coat Band or anything. Um, I just went all in for art.
0: How did Pylon come to be?
1: Well, after I graduated college, my first husband couldn't seem to graduate. He kept switching his major. So I was kind of stuck in Athens. Uh, at the time, really, there were almost no jobs unless they were at the university. And there were a few jobs in town, you know, mostly retail or whatever, um, but you were kind of expected to leave you know people go why are you still here um and i mm-hmm. had to some interviews with uh uh some different people through ug8 like uh one was uh being a a window designer you know for a department store in atlanta and new york um but uh i had to just kind of like say, well, I I can't even consider that right now, maybe in the future, because he's still in school. So uh, I stayed in town. I was working um, at DuPont on the weekends, which was, uh, uh, it sounds odd, but it was like a textile factory. They had a beaming operation, and uh, they also did carpet fibers. And working on the weekend, you know, at Athens at that point in time, we made enough money that we could almost survive all weekend long you know all week long without another job uh because it was so cheap to live here at the time um so uh i got a job over christmas and they kept me for a few months at the jc penning catalog department and um one day uh randy stopped by and asked me if i'd like to audition for his band and uh um i did and uh it was Valentine's Day, 1979. Uh, he and Michael uh, were good friends of mine from art school. And I sort of knew Curtis, the drummer, from being around town. He was in art school as well. And they, they liked me, so they said, uh, you're in. And uh, then we just started rehearsing and uh, a couple of weeks later, we had our first show.
0: Now, how many of them were also working at DuPont?
1: Um, Curtis and Michael did. They were on a different shift. Um, but, but Randy did. A, he had a, I believe he had a job as the best boy at the time.
0: So, yes, yeah, so we're talking about Randy Bewley and Curtis Crow and Michael Lahusky. It's interesting because you think about bands being, you know, influenced by, you know, bands that preceded them, which obviously all bands are. Um, but. Pylon was influenced a lot by you guys working in that factory, right?
1: Yeah, I think, uh, being at the factory and also, uh, it were, you know, visually it inspired us and also, you know, the machine sounds, you know, inspired us too. Um, but, um, we all kind of came from all over the places, uh, um, to what kinds of music we'd like Probably uh, um, one of the few things we all had in common is uh, we all like craft work as an example. Mm. We all like James Brown. We liked uh, the Eraserhead soundtrack. <laughs> um, Michael collected German singles and uh, Randy was, uh, and Michael shared a record collection because they were roommates and uh, Randy veered more toward, the pop element of uh music and Michael was more lean more toward uh the dance oriented kind of side maybe uh we oh uh, another band we all like was wire um right. we all like you know a lot of bands were coming out at the time you could preach on everything uh, that was new music wise uh that was coming up like Elvis Costello, television, talking heads, blondie. We all loved the Ramones. Gang of Four in there. Right. Gang of Four. Uh, we had their first single. Um, that was uh, the one with the red label um, that came out on Factory, I guess. Um, they had an Armalite rifle on one side. And-
0: so what was this tryout like when they had you audition? What were you doing and what was your impression of the music?
1: I think they liked me because um, when I came in, I didn't have any preconceptions. I didn't really have any ideas about what I wanted to do. I just waited to see what the music was, and then I reacted to it. Like, they would play a song through. They already had some lyrics for some songs that were all neatly typed up in this orange final notebook they had on a music stand, you know, and I, I just tried to make the words fit what they were doing. It was very loud. I'll say that. Uh, I don't mm. think they could even hear what I was trying to do. And it, it um, didn't really matter because I was putting forth effort. They could see that I was thinking about what I was doing. And uh, they liked me, you know. Were
0: you, were you kind of shouting over the noise at that point? Or were you trying to sort of finesse nice little melodies, you know, amid all of that?
1: yeah <laughs> well um it's real hard to exactly remember but it was so loud i think that that did contribute to uh some of my vocal style at first uh, uh because there was some shouting and uh there was some uh, trying to find some space to fit in there um to find room for myself um I don't think Curtis could hear what I was doing until we went into the studio. You know, our drummer, but uh, we we made practice tapes, took them home, listened to them. I came up with things to do, and so uh, uh, it wasn't all shouting.
0: Right. Well, I feel like your your approach is different from a lot of singers who will who will look at it like okay, now I'm going to put this little melody on top of this and I'm going to sort of showcase my voice and that sort of thing. And, and, it, and it feels at least like you're, you had a different set of priorities in how you were trying to fit into the music other than sort of drawing attention to yourself as a singer, like in terms of the sound of the words, the rhythm of what you were doing, the way you were delivering it. Tell me if you can just sort of about sort of the way you were approaching that.
1: I wanted to find a place for myself within the machinery of the song, it's like being a, a cog, um, that went into the piece, um, so that the machine would run. And it was kind of like being in a jet aircraft engine sometimes. Um, but, uh, I, I, uh, I wanted to fit in. Um, i wanted to try to, uh, um, make things, uh, Work, you know, as, as a part of the whole. It wasn't that uh what I was doing could even stand alone, you know, by itself. Um, I don't, I don't know how to describe it other than, you know, when going to practice and they would have some new riffs or something new to do. It was almost like having a, a blank canvas. Um, that I could splatter what I was doing across what they were doing. It was almost like being a graffiti artist, I think. (laughs) Yeah, I knew it wasn't meant to be anything that was uh, super important to the world. I mean, it was just meant to be uh, something that was fun to do.
0: The songs are credited to Pylon. What was the songwriting process? Are you all in the room creating at the same time? Does someone come in with a, you know, it's like, you know, Randy come in with a riff and you all start building on that? Or do you come in with a lyric and they start building on it? Or like, how did that all work?
1: Well, it was different um, with almost every song. Um, For instance, M Train, which is the only song that Randy plays bass, and that happened because uh, Michael went to the bathroom. Randy picked up the bass, and uh, um, Curtis started playing along with him. And uh, I just grabbed a beer, and I just started, like, um, singing along with it. I exactly how it turned out. I mean, huh. like, right from the beginning, all on the spot. And the, Michael came back from the bathroom, and... We were already playing. I mean, the tape's rolling, you know, like this little cheap tape player we had. And uh, he just picked up Randy's guitar and started making sounds with it. And uh, the song pretty much wrote itself on the spot. Um, you know, it was years and years before I realized that Michael was imitating train sounds. <laughs> Crazy. Um, Randy had just gotten a brand new uh hollow, well, it was not you, you know, it was vintage, but a, a secret a hollow body that had a really beautiful tone to it. And, uh, he, he just started playing it and, uh, I just came up with a uh, crazy to go along with it. I mean, you know, that was almost all on the spot too. Wow. Later on, uh, like, uh, the song, K, um. We had a couple of songs that needed lyrics, actually. It wasn't always that easy to be inspired and come up with lyrics on the spot. So uh, Michael and I played a Scrabble game um, to make up the lyrics for that. And then the first time we played it live, we'd rehearse it, but uh, it just completely fell apart. And we were all horribly embarrassed with uh, the direction, you know, it had gone live. I mean, we were embarrassed. And we got off the stage of one of our friends was like, oh, my God, that new song, it was so wonderful. What was that called? And we were like, what? And, you know, because this person never really acted that excited, you know, about our stuff. So we were like, well, there must be something to this. And we got a hold of a board tape and listened to it. And I was like, holy crap, it is good. So we, spent about, <laughs> <laughs> we spent about a month learning how to play it from the mistake. We were, you know, it was like we realized that this mistake was good. So we had to figure out how we messed it up. When my band Pylon Reenactment Society started playing the song, um, our guitarist Jason E. Smith actually had to chart it out um, because it doesn't really follow any um, usual kind of scheme of right. uh, how it would go. It's more freeform than that uh, from the guitarist standpoint, and so uh, uh, he had to like actually chart it all out.
0: And the lyrics you came up with by playing Scrabble—they're just Scrabble words.
1: Yes, um, I would take a line and Michael would take a line. And so the, uh, the words we came up with this game, as we're playing along, we're each taking turns and writing a line uh, that goes along with the uh, word that we got. And so you'll hear me shout out the number of points you get for the word or, you know, that was a lot of fun. Um, that's on uh chomp the second record, um, and gyrate some of those early lyrics were all written by Michael before, you know, I even got into the band and I would have to try to, um, figure out how to make it work because he didn't always think about the rhythm of what they were playing, um, as going along, um, with the songs I might have to extend words or shorten them, make them abrupt, make them fit. Was songs like driving school
0: right yeah driving school you're 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 just going caution red light bus stop turn right and and you're giving <laughs> these you're giving these uh, instructions on on your driving school and that's that's kind of tongue-in-cheek right
1: it is it's really a uh, funny uh, song but you know car talk used it once i was really you know that's a proud moment of achievement that uh Car talk on NPR used a uh, driving school. Now, That's the hilarious. sound on that, that really abrasive sound that you hear the yeah, roar,
0: yeah, uh, that buzzing.
1: Yeah, that came about because Michael happened to walk past this little black and white TV that we had in um, our studio. It was Michael and mine art studio, but Pylon also practiced there. Uh, we watched Batman on this little black and white TV and uh, he was walking past it with the space guitar and he noticed that when he did the sound fed back into, um, the, uh, you know, into the television. So, you know, uh, messing with the vertical control knob, you know, he was able to get other sounds and also make, you know, a nice flipping display on the screen.
0: Right. For driving school. It's not really a driving (laughs) sound, but it's, but it fits the song anyway, in this weird, way did the music exist first and they said you know what this song we're going to call a song driving school and just put it in these sort of driving instructions or was that kind of you know someone singing it while you're playing it like kind of randomly making that association
1: um i did write the words i think that michael came up with those words uh without maybe even thinking about how the uh you know it was really going to go with the song and so when I came into the band, that was like one of the sets of lyrics he handed me and I made it fit.
0: Right. I was going to say, that's what you said that when you came in, you had to make the, the 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 syllables and everything fit the song.
1: Yeah. Yeah. But I made it fit.
0: Oh yeah. No, it sounds like it goes with it now. So, well,
1: and the human,
0: <laughs> the, and the human body sounds yeah. like one that's sort of born out of you guys all being in the
1: factory. Working is no problem. I actually wrote those after the band had started. You know, it's about um, kind of like a little bit about the experience of working at DuPont. Um, Also, you know, about being just a worker bee, a cog in the factory, you know, a little wheel there.
0: So, and the band got its name from basically the factory, too. If people, people see the band named Pylon and they think, oh, there's a William Faulkner novel called Pylon and you're a Southern band, therefore it must be a Faulkner reference. But it's actually a pylon in the factory, right?
1: Right. Um, we were working at DuPont and, um, Michael and I, after they'd invited me in the band, we didn't have a name yet. Um, so he was making lists and I was looking at it, at them with him and, uh, saw these safety cones, you know, in the factory, you know, you see the orange pristine, safety cones, the black and yellow striped tape, you know, kind of marking on spots, um, dots on the floor, and uh, he found out what they were called, and uh, we thought, well, you know, that's a really cool word, and that's a cool-looking object. We can use that as kind of like an icon or a symbol for the band, so uh, that's how that came about.
0: Right. You're the art, the art uh, background for the band really sort of clicked in there because you have the name pylon, you have that cone, which is a great icon. And I mean, everything from the font, just the whole aesthetic of the band sort of follows, follows that. Right. And then the music fits in with that visual or the visual fits in with the music.
1: Yeah, it was all of all of a piece. I mean, it wasn't ever really meant to be more than, you know, uh, it did. It did mean. We didn't intend for this to be something that lasted. Um, It had a goal in mind. Our goal was we were going to get a New York play, get written up in New York Rocker and disband. Um, But uh, it was a little while before we got written up in New York Rocker. And uh, uh, we actually got written up in Interview Magazine first. It was uh, like a... um, having a performance art piece is what it was. And I totally understood that we had a a goal um, and that we were going to disband, but it ended up being too much fun. And here we are talking about it, you know, what is this? 43 years later or whatever. Right. But what, (laughs) all right. But you're
0: going to get rid of a New York rocker and then disband. Why would you disband?
1: Because it was, it was just uh, an art piece, You know, we weren't really thinking about it as being a band. Hmm. We were thinking of it as being like performance art. Honest to God.
0: (laughs) Well, an interview wrote you up and and wasn't there like a phrase from that that ended up spawning one of your big lyrics? Like, didn't dub come from that?
1: Yes, yes. Um, I think at the end of uh, the little um, review, it was Glenn O'Brien. He had a a column, and interview at the time called B, and uh, he wrote about the Gang of Four and he wrote about us. And at the end of the little piece about us, he said, it sounds like uh, these kids eat dub for breakfast. And we were like, what is dub? We just (laughs) thought that was funny. So we made it a song called dub and pretty much most of the lyrics are we dub for breakfast
0: right very passionately delivered too (laughs) yeah (laughs) so was that something where you you just got together in the studio afterwards and you just started singing you know that and they just came up with it or like was that something you sort of wrote out or how did that work
1: we actually did that live, you know, um, before we went in the studio, but not very many times. Uh, we would actually planned uh, two other songs being our first single, but uh, it was one of our newest songs, and cool was, too. And uh, when we went in the studio, we really hadn't come up with an ending for it yet, and that's why it uh, fades out and uh we just thought it'd be fun we had a lot of friends show up if they all helped us chant we did for breakfast so we had a whole brain full of friends chanting right. that yeah and then cool's
0: your first single when you put that out did you have like i don't know do you like send it to all your friends are you are you submitting it to new york rocker or do you have sort of Hopes for it at that point. Like, oh we hope this is like some sort of a hit, or were you still kind of like we're putting out a single, but we don't really care if it's a hit or not?
1: Um, no. Uh it got sent to New York Rocker. I think they put that on their uh cover um as one of the top songs 1980 or whatever. But uh um, you know, really we we had no clue about promotion um or anything at that point. Uh Our label, D.B. Rex, we were fortunate in that they'd already put out two other singles. Uh, The first one was uh, Brock Lobster, 52 Girls by uh, B-52s. And the second one was uh, uh, by Kevin Dunn and the Regiment of Women. He was a producer on our single. We would just... You know, they gave us boxes of them and wherever we played would take them to a record store. And uh, most of those people didn't know who we were or what it was. I remember walking into 99 Records in uh, New York and uh, there was this really cool lady there. They gave her the single to play and we just kind of wandered around, you know, the record store. Uh, she played one side, played the whole thing, then flipped it over played the other side of it. She said, I'll take a box of them. I'm going to London tomorrow. And so, uh, you know, it it was that kind of reaction. We got chased out of one record store in uh, New York because uh, the owner said, I don't like bands from Georgia. And uh, really, the only band that had been up there was B-52s. I I couldn't understand that at all because we all loved them. There right. might have been some jealousy on his part. I don't know, you know, with the punk scene up there or whatever. I have no idea what that was about, but we were chased out of the store. Um, but that was the only time it happened. Usually the uh at least take five of them or whatever. You know, so we um, took them around that uh, usually buy them on the spot or would Get a receipt in the life of the collect fighter, I guess.
0: Yeah, we look now back on Athens and you're like that's just this hotbed of great music where you had the B-52s and Pylon and REM and Love Tractor and all sorts of other bands. When when you were starting out, did it feel like it was a, a scene? That, and the and did the B-52s kind of shine sort of in the in the distance, like here's the success story out of
1: Athens? um they were uh very beloved and the, uh, there was a whole scene that sprang up just around them and when they left and they had to leave at the time because there was really no infrastructure like there is now like the internet and there was really not much happening in Athens uh so at that time bands if they got to a certain level, they moved to New York or they moved to Los Angeles. And uh, um, so they just moved away. And uh, in some ways, I guess, maybe us and some of the other bands that followed, we kind of stepped into that vacuum that they left because people were used to, you know, seeing a live band play at a party or whatever. Also, I want to point out, you know, we wouldn't have gotten a show in New York if it hadn't been for their help. Um, Really, the first couple of times we performed, people just stood there and stared at us like, what the heck is this? You know, Mm. I mean, I was having my doubts as to whether this was any good or not, you know, because people were just staring at us. And it wasn't like what I'd seen The reaction with the B-52s where people go crazy and start dancing or whatever. It's just, I don't think they knew what to think. And uh, we had a show uh, at a party about the third or fourth time we played. And uh, they happened to be in town and they came and saw us. And they just, they were like, what is this? Um, Fred and uh, Kate came up and they said, you've got to come to New York. And so uh our next couple of practices, we made a uh cassette on our little cassette recorder, um copied it off in some Kmart multi-pack cassette <laughs> tape and uh sent them with beefy twos to uh New York and uh they had a friend who ran the door at uh, the med club and you know he's the one who decided he got in there. He didn't, he wasn't a bouncer. He You know, really, that was like a really good job because he knew everybody. He knew all the celebrities and the club owners and whatever. So Robert Molnar took the tape to Ruth Polsky at Hurrah right before she left. And uh, she was like, oh, yeah, we'll book him. But then uh, Jim Ferrott came in and uh, it was left to him to actually you know, book us. And at first we were like, no, we don't want to play with them. No, we don't want to play with them. Uh, and then he said the gang of four and we were like, holly, you know what? Um, of course we'll play with them. We love them. We play their single at our parties. And so um, that's how we really got our start. Um, we wouldn't have uh, had that opportunity except for the b fifty two who were, really, really hot stuff at the time in New York.
0: And you guys presented yourselves very differently. I mean, you both had, on one hand, you both had these kind of aggressive surf guitar things going on. On the other hand, they had like the big colorful costumes and the hairdos and everything else. Um, how were you presenting yourselves on stage at that point?
1: Um, at first we really didn't move around a whole lot. Um, I think we were still uh, learning how to play, um, but, uh, Jim Ferrat said, you need to move around more on stage. So we took him in his word, and we really started moving around a lot. It's hard to describe. It wasn't like, uh, it was performance. It was really kind of stark in a way. Um, It was just the four of us on a stage in an audience. Um, We didn't really even like flashing lights or you know, crazy light shows or having a lot of props or, you know, having big hair or, you know, crazy costumes or whatever. It just wasn't our thing because we were art students. But uh, um, we were just performing the music and, you know, just kind of becoming one with the audience.
0: So you'd seen it as this performance art piece and you were going to disband after your New York Rocker write-up. Did that change? Did your sort of ideas of success or being in a band change as you started doing it and getting better at it?
1: It's really hard to remember all of that now. so long ago, but it's almost like we got onto a freight train there for a while because it seemed like, you know, everybody wanted us to play. And uh, we were doing a lot of traveling. I mean, we drove across the country three times. We were going up the Northeast corridor about every six to eight weeks. Um, I mean, uh, there was one week we went to New York right after we started going up there that we were up there an entire week. We played five or six clubs in a week. And then the Cool Dub singles started getting picked up by, um, uh, um, college radio and, uh, different radio stations like, uh, um, one of, uh, I think, WBCN in Boston uh, made right. it the Mantra Song of the Week after it came out. And uh, that meant that they played the song like an unreal number of times a day, like something crazy, like 40 times a day when they oh. called it Mantra Song of the Week. Um, Um, You know, uh, stations at uh, NYU and um, over um, in Jersey City, Um, and then you know, we'd be in San Francisco or Texas, uh, Louisiana. You know, I've seen more college radio station lobbies, and you know, a lot of our success with um, uh, the Dry Raid and Chomp album come from the support of college radio because uh commercial radio didn't really play a lot of uh, independent music at the time um but um there were um a couple of exceptions like when the m train single came out it, it, it did get played like um 96 rock in atlanta and uh uh, some big station up in Chicago. I can't remember which one it was, but it was put into rotation.
0: So what you're saying is that you got sort of caught up on the train of being in Pylon and it was no longer kind of your little performance art thing. It was something else that was,
1: it was, know, it was career is the right word, but. It continued being us We were tourists in the land of rock and roll. Somebody come up to us and they go, I'd like to go see Pylon tonight, but I'm short a dollar and give them $3 so they could get in, you know, and have hmm. beer to um, that type of thing. It's like, to us, it was just something fun to do. It wasn't really even a, a business for us. But we did make enough money for a few years there. I was able to live without working another job. And uh, although I lived, you know, pretty frequently at the time, but you could at that point in time, I mean, my rent was like three or four hundred dollars a month. And I had a three speed bicycle. I didn't live near town. So it was almost no over- overhead. <laughs>
0: did you all think about moving to New York like the B-52s did and, you know, taking that so-called next step in the, you know, ascendance of, you know, independent rock bands?
1: No, we never really did. We liked living in Athens. I mean, to be honest, we look forward to coming home. We always ate at the taco stand before we'd head out on the road and would eat together there before we all went back to our little spots, you know, in town. And uh, we might not see each other for a week or two because we'd all been kind of holed up in a van together. But then we were like, you know, want to see each other and then um, we'd get ready for another little trip, you know.
0: But that idea of, you know, becoming a New York band uh, didn't appeal to you
1: all. You know, I don't think it even occurred to us. We, I don't think we even considered it. It was not like even an idea that was on our radar. You know?
0: had gyrate which i think was 1980 and then chomp was 83 right um, and, and then chris damian gene holder produced chomp with i think mitch easter engineering what was recording those two albums like and were they similar or different experiences
1: they were totally different experiences gyrate we uh, went in the studio um we had a few songs um but most of the recording and um Mixing was done in about three days, and uh, uh, we started recording CHOP. um, Oh, heck, I can't even remember when it was, Um, but Danny Beard uh, had booked us into this uh, big studio in Atlanta called Christian Broadcasting, and, uh, I mean, it was large enough he could record a choir in there. Uh, We had the same engineer, Bruce Baxter, that's pretty much what he had done with dry rate is he just turned everything on and recorded us as we were. And Randy was kind of like, uh, wanting to get more into the recording and production. And, and he really wanted us to have a producer. So, uh, I don't know who talked to Danny about Chris Damey or whose idea it was actually, because, you know, um, I I wasn't really a part of that decision, but, uh, um, Chris Stamey, I think was even in England at the time. And Danny called him, uh, and talked to him about, you know, being a producer. So I think Chris would do it if he could have a gene holder along with him. He was awesome in the DBs and, uh, uh, we'd heard good things about, um, uh, Minch Easter's driving the studio from, uh, REM. Uh, so, uh, we started going up there and recording. We'd already recorded a uh, crazy and M train at Christian broadcast studios. And, uh, uh, I think, uh, Chris and Jean um, did remix um, Crazy, but I, don't, I think they left M-Train alone. I'm almost 100% sure on that. And uh, we started recording. We didn't quite have an album's worth of material yet, but there was also uh, the fact that uh, we had two bands um, that we had to get our uh, schedules together. So this recording of uh Trump was a drawn out process just because of that, but also uh, there was a little more care being put into uh, all the different um, pieces of the song. Um, it was not maybe the best word in this situation for mixing at the time, um, and it was kind of all hands on deck when uh, something was mixed down. They would say, this is your knob, this is your knob, this is your knob. I mean, it wasn't huh. the one person standing there doing the mixing. You know, there was somebody who was coordinating all of it. You, you had to have a, a bunch of different hands on the knobs, and, um, and then you'd make a pass on the mix. Now, the next time you mixed it, It might be a little bit different, you know. It was different. It's not like it is now. And also, uh, performing something, if you made a mistake, it was a lot of trouble to drop that note or that sound in. You know, it was like, uh, it was, uh, you know, tape that wide, and it'd have to be razor-bladed apart. You hear, you know, Mitch over there going, oh, you know, to get to the spot between sounds. We really tried not to make very many mistakes uh, just because it was a headache Um, or they would record another track and then they'd have to, in the process of mixing, somebody would have to quickly turn that track on and the other one off, you know, and then back on. Uh, So It was not uh, an easy process, uh, but I think uh, Tate, to me, uh, there is something warmer sounding about it. Um, It is uh, a more immediate sound. Uh, Digital, though, uh, is quite beautiful, and it's so easy to do now with Pro Tools. It's like crazy um, to me compared to how it used to be. Right a lot less of an ordeal, you
0: know? You're not cutting all that tape and everything. Um, Did did Chris Damey, have you guys change your approach at all? Like, was he very hands-on in the production part of it?
1: He he was very good at getting a good performance out of people um, and uh, listening. Um, I think that he maybe had some um, interesting ideas about who we were Um, but we knew what we liked and what we wanted. Um, Michael and, um, Kurt Curtis and Randy weren't trained musicians at all. I did have a little background myself, but I didn't really make a big deal out of it though. I think he definitely recognized that, uh, we had talent and there was something there. Uh, he was able to get very good performance out of me. Um, and, on uh, the re- record my voice, you know, in a, um, very, uh, neat sounding way. Uh, he, several times he would actually have two mics taped together, um, and, uh, would be two diff- different tracks that went together, but they were, they sounded almost the same, but it was slightly different mic on each track. So, uh. Also, he had something uh, which we'd never seen before called a noise gate, um, which when um, it was it was brand new, it was plugged in, uh, it would uh, trigger sounds, for instance, uh, from the bass drum, would trigger these sounds uh, that they came up with. I think, you know, uh, production-wise, uh, it really ended up being a very interesting record. Um, am actually very happy with both of those records, but one was real easy, real fast. The other one much longer to make, not only because of, uh, you know, um, just being able to get us all on the same building at the same time, but also, um, uh, you know, in the schedules and whatnot, but, uh, uh, writing the material because we were out on the road a lot. And when you're on the road, um, it's, it's difficult to write.
0: Did you feel like you were kind of a band on the rise at that point? Like did, did Chomp kind of bring you guys up another level?
1: We didn't really get a chance to see because Chomp came out in 83, the summer, 83, and not too long after that, we made a decision, although we hadn't announced it yet, that we were breaking up, and right. we did December. That was so, my next,
0: next next line of questioning.
1: Yeah, so I don't know. It's like uh uh, this record is very beloved. It actually now is outsells Gyrate since you know, it was available again in the uh, U.S. It had been uh, available um, since, uh, I don't think, since 1983. I don't think it had been repressed since. Well, maybe it had been repressed, but I don't know all of that. But in since the 80s, uh, it hadn't really been available on vinyl Um, we did make, uh, three issues with DFA and, uh, um, you know, dry rate plus and chomp more, but, um, we never really saw how far, I guess this record might have gone because we broke up. All
0: right. So, so what was the decision to break up while you're finally, you, you finally get this album out after all this work, you know, people seem to really like it. It's got great songs on it. Why break up at that point?
1: Well, it, was, it just felt like it was becoming more of a business and less fun. And that had been our pact from the beginning. We'll continue doing this as long as it's fun. And it's not that we were afraid of work or we were spoiled brats or whatever. It just was not what interested us at that point. And I mean, you know, in retrospect, it was a horrible business decision, I think it was a very good life decision because uh, we were able to go on and do other things like raise families, concentrate on art, you know, go back to school, um, you know, whatnot. So it was a uh, uh, interesting time in our lives.
0: When I spoke to Michael about this, he'd he'd also mentioned how that the trends in music at that point were, you know, you go into a club and there would be video monitors everywhere and, you know, flock of seagulls were doing their thing. And, and that it felt, it felt like music was moving in the, in the direction of, you know, videos where the bands are the stars and this sort of synthesized kind of representation of the synthesized music going along with that. And that he felt like it was just discouraging to see all that happening. Do you feel like that was sort of a factor too, and that music was going somewhere that you guys weren't?
1: You know, in retrospect, probably so. We wanted to be kind of casual, and here we were. And uh, seeing um, that we knew being turned into like little tarted up lollipops or whatever, um, it just wasn't appealing to us. You know, not that um, if we stayed with DV Rex, uh, that they would have done that. But if we've gone to another label, to a major label, they were all about you know, grooming and appearance and, um, you know, the videos and whatnot. And I've got nothing against videos, uh, but, uh, I don't think our videos would have been necessarily the videos MTV would have been interested in.
0: (laughs) How much attention did, did, did REM covering crazy bring back to pylon, even though you guys had already broken up at that point?
1: It brought us an awful lot of attention. Also that movie Athens, Georgia inside out. And we had fans that continued to write us, um, we'd put on the back of the Trump record, you know, send us a a postcard from your travels. And it was, uh, like the, the fan mail actually went up. It didn't like ever go away. It just continued to increase. So, uh, Um, I think REM were talking to, uh, Michael, um, I had a toddler at the time, so I wasn't going out much, but, uh, they were like, uh, we think the world might get you now. They might understand what you're about. And, uh, thinking about it, you know, uh, had a business meeting and we decided, well, let's do this again, but we're going to. I approached this in more of a business like manner. And uh, I mean, that was the understanding from the beginning um, on Pylon too.
0: This is when you guys got back together in 89.
1: It was 88. Yeah.
0: Okay. Yeah. And then, and, and then, Chain came out in 90.
1: I believe you're correct. Right. And between that and when we got back together, DB Rex put out, um, a CD, because the CD was a new format at the time called right. Hits.
0: Yeah, I got that. I got that. It starts with um, Beep Beep, as I remember. It's great.
1: <laughs> yeah. We've got almost all of our recorded material on there. Um, and we jokingly called it Hits because we didn't really have any hits. But uh, we had to decide a couple of songs to leave off um, because, uh, you know, even with the CD, there's a limit to the length we could have. And so that's why we called it hits.
0: So when you, when you guys got back together and, you know, you did uh, chain, so you're doing a new album and you're playing out again, did you, was it a much different experience this time in terms of audience recognition and places you were playing and also just the process of how you work together?
1: it was more business like approach. Uh, we ended up getting, um, manager Jennifer Blair, um, who came from management company in, um, uh, um, uh, Philadelphia. Um, and so, uh, she really gave up a lot to come with us. And, uh, we got, uh, shows opening like the, uh, last leg of the green tour with REM. We did, uh, section of dates with, uh, B-52s. And this was quite different from, um, you know, earlier, one of the impetus maybe behind us getting, you know, um, breaking up was, uh, playing with U2, but REMs and B-52s audience, they understood us. They knew what we were coming from. You know, it wasn't like, uh, Getting beat off the stage. No, they embraced us. And uh, so getting to play big venues like that, but in between would play small venues. Uh, we pretty much played every size of venue you can imagine um, and uh, toured all over the place, except for the Northwest. Um, there wasn't really a whole lot there at the time.
0: Was it fun for you
1: all? Yeah, you know, actually. To me, it was, I'm probably one of the few people I've ever talked to that actually enjoys touring. And uh, I think it's the travel aspect that I really like and also um, getting to talk to some people, you know, outside my usual orbit Um but you never know what's going to happen with the performance. It's kind of like walking on tightrope or whatever.
0: So, the band is having a, a good experience doing all of this? Like, because you, you picked up where you left off, you're, you're doing all this, but you didn't stick around that much longer after it.
1: No, we broke up in uh, 91. And um, what happened was, is you know, we didn't know that Randy had some kind of internal timeline going on, you know, uh, before he was. You know, he had—he is a parent of two small boys. And uh, there was a lot of pressure just from that aspect. And so we recorded Chain and not too much longer after we recorded that and it came out. We um, broke up because Randy didn't want to continue. And to us, I mean, we could have replaced Randy. I mean, you know, that was something that was actually on the table, but we realized that Paulan was only the four of us so if one person left that was it you know
0: yeah and then and then he he died of a heart attack in 2009 which which I'm sure was a shock and um
1: yeah we'd been playing together again from you know like 2004 and I'd actually worked very closely with him on the DFA reissues um and uh helping get that together and uh, the mastering process, you know, at Rod- Rodney Mills Masterhouse over in Duluth, um, Georgia. So, uh, yeah, it was just a total shock. He's also playing um, in a project with me. It was a recording project called Supercluster, Cluster. And uh, it was the day before we were actually about to go out on the road and play a few shows up in North Carolina and uh a little further out so very shocking just totally shocked uh, i couldn't believe it you know um because out of all of us he took better care of himself than anybody you know but mm. he was a diabetic and uh uh i don't know uh, there might have been some heart anomaly that we were unaware of or whatever but uh It's just sad. Very, very sad.
0: So, and then years later, you, you picked up doing Pylon Reenactment Society.
1: (laughs) Yes, yes, I did. And that was just something that was supposed to be a one-off show, uh, Um, Two of the members of uh, Supercluster I've been working with since like 2012, uh, Jason E. Smith, and uh, um, we've been this recording project called Supercluster, and uh, Randy was the electric guitarist, and uh, my husband, Bob, played acoustic guitar. But Jason E. Smith was recording us, and Kay Stanton was the bassist, and uh, they had a project called Casper and the Cookies, but that also backed up a lot of people, very excellent musicians. And uh, Jason came to me and said, uh, I'm working on um, doing music for Art Rocks Athens, which was a series of exhibits and shows that had to do with the connection between music and art in Athens between 75 and 85. And uh, I gave it some thought. And uh, I said, I'd like to do some um, Pylon songs, if you can help me put a band together. So he did. And uh, we called it Pylon Reenactment Society, which had been a joke with Pylons. We had to relearn all that material. And it's right. like we were the Pylon Historical Reenactment Society, you know, at practice. And... Uh, So we called it that, kind of shortened it a little bit, and uh, um, had a nice show, put it away for the, you know, put it away. I thought that was that. And then a year later, Jason said, they're doing it again. Uh, Would you like to sing again? We can have more time and uh, help me put a band together again. And uh, um, then Dressy Bessie heard about it, and they said, Would you like to come play some dates with us? And we're like, yeah, that sounds like fun. And so we did. And then out of that, those shows, people started calling us up and wanting to book us. And so um, we spent a lot of time learning the Pylon Gyrate catalog and branched off into Chomp some And then we started writing new material and uh, we actually were in the studio for the second time recording. So hopefully we'll get that finished up this year.
0: Yeah. I heard heard a song you had called compression. That sounds Uh like sort of kind of like a little bit of a reggae lilt on a pylon type song.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, We're using pylon as our guiding star, so to speak. Yeah.
0: Have uh, Michael and Curtis, heard you guys or played with you guys or signed off on any of this or have any attitude toward it?
1: No, there's no attitude, at least none that they've ever shown to me. Um, you know, actually I wouldn't do it if they were against it. Um, one thing I want to make, sh- you know, absolutely clear is we are not pile on, um, but we're the next best thing. <laughs> right. And, uh, I just make sure that that business and this business are totally separate. Um, But they come to shows. They've actually gotten up and played a few songs with us before. And uh, um, very, very sweet. They were really excited when we opened for the Gang of Four a few months ago in uh, Atlanta. And they both came.
0: How much did you all work together on those, the pylon box? Cause that's a big four a vinyl and four CD set as well. Uh, the yeah, vinyl yeah. Came on first, and it's really a beautiful box. It's got that big book. And
1: the first 1500 were signed, um, by Michael Curtis and I, and it took us eight hours to sign those. Um, but we did it. So, uh, I've I've worked on the business aspect on getting all this together for many years for getting things uh, straightened out um, because I knew at some point uh, I wanted to see gyrate and chomp reissued. And the main reason um, for that is over the years I've had so many people go where do I buy this? Where do I get this? And it have been out of print so long. I was like, well, we're going to have to get this strained out so we can reissue those because uh, people are paying like crazy money for this stuff. You know? Um, I don't know, you know, eBay and Discogs. And I'm like, this is not fair um, to fans who have an income level like me who can't afford that, you know, it should be available if they want it. And so uh I got the business stuff set up. That took many years. And uh I had a lot of help with it. Um chief person who helped me was Philip Walden Jr. He was the son of uh, the owner for Capricorn. He was an entertainment lawyer in Atlanta. Um, but he he died. Um you know, several years into that. It was a tragic accident. So I got this part sewed up. And at some point I'm in rehearsal and Jason says, you know, I'd like to have first crack at remastering uh, Chomp and Gyrate if you ever decide to reissue those. And I hadn't even talked to him or anybody about what I was thinking, you know, what I was doing. I knew... It would just be more work for me, you know, answering emails and phone calls or whatever. If I just kept it close to the chest, I was like, okay, so I filed that away. Jason is a certified audio engineer that's actually what he went to school in um, up in Boston. So I saw some other stuff he'd done, the stuff he had worked with on super So at some point, I got the business part of it nailed down, I said, Jason, let's work on this reissue. So we started gathering tapes and, uh, um, you know, like Mitch Easter and uh, Chris Stamey and uh, Jeff Calder, you know, in Atlanta from Swimming Pool Cues and uh, uh, all these different various people. Plus I have some of uh, the recordings right here in my own house um, just trying to bring it all together. Jason uh, took these tapes. We got one whole box of mix tapes, for instance, from um, uh, Jeff Calder brought from Atlanta. Uh, I guess they been at Southern Tracks and also with Danny Beard in Atlanta. And um, it was very confusing for Jason at first because uh, some of the reels would be almost completely empty in a box. And then another one would be twice as full as it should be with a lot of splices on it. And what he realized that happened is, is things have been uh, you know, put out, um, like, for instance, uh, hits. that just like chopped up stuff and put it on a reel. There was like no uh, really uh, rhyme or reason to it. Uh, So he strained all of that out, got it all on metal reels. He digitized everything. He said it was fortunate because some of those reels were right on the verge of being lost. And before he could even take them off to digitize them, he'd have to bake the tapes in an actual oven, uh, which is a fascinating process. You have to bake them uh, and then they have to come off and be digitized with them a certain amount of time. And, uh, he was doing all of this work and, um, finally we got it to the point where we had it all digitized digitized at all at a much higher, um, resolution or level than was really necessary for record. Um, I was like, okay, um, we can start shopping this. And i talked to Michael and Curtis and Curtis is like, well, you've got cart launch with whatever you want to do on my part. And, uh, Michael, uh, needed to be involved uh, from a graphic standpoint because he was the graphics guru for Pylon. Um, Jason and I, um, made a decision, you know, early on, we were going to have Dry Rape and Chomp, and then there might be one album of r- rarities and then a single. And uh, he had gotten uh, uh, a couple of songs from a friend of ours, Chris Rasmussen, which Randy had gotten from him for DFA, but then Randy died. And we didn't know the connection on everything. Um, but anyway, uh, Chris says, I've got this entire tape." that has never been put out as like before they even went in the studio for cool dub and Jason listened to it. I was like, Oh, wow, this is great. So, um, he got permission to use a couple of those songs. So then I'm talking to different labels. I had interest from about four labels that were going to put, um, you know, offers in and, uh, new West went out because um, they had a local office. Michael's mother was ill at the time, so it would make it easier for him. Also, they just put out this box set for the glands, which was just beautiful. You know, the whole thing was so well done. Um, I was convinced that, uh, you know, after talking with George Fontaine, Sr., that um, we really hit it off, that they would be the ones for us to go with and one of the reasons besides those other things i mentioned is a lot of the other labels they were like well you know we have our own graphics person you know we have a template you know uh we do this or we see the quality of the product or whatever and uh, he was like i want you to be it to be whatever you want it to be I'm just am going to step out of the way of the artist. You know, you can have it however you want it. Uh, Brady Brock, I'm going to put him in charge of this. He's a big fan of your band. Uh, and he, Brady actually pushed it to be more than we initially thought, you know, because I thought the book, Oh, uh, well, it's going to be like a football program or something, you know, like right. just a booklet and in a box set. But he brought in all of these books that he loved about different bands and he's like, I'd really like to see a book like one of these with the box set. And I mean, you know, um, extensive books, you know, that will satisfy uh, your fans and also, you uh, you know, help with their curiosity. And another thing that kind of came along with that is we were in the process of gathering up things to uh, donate to special collections at UGA. So it was just almost like a perfect storm. And then Brady, he heard what Jason and I uh, were going to put together. And he heard those songs finally from Chris And He said, I want to hear that whole tape. And when he did, he's like, wow, we've got to put this whole thing out just like it is, you know, warts and all. And, uh, so that's what happened. That's why it's a four album set and not right. a three that why it has yeah. like, yeah, a the Raz tape book with it. Yeah. Then he got a Henry Evans, uh, to work with Michael on graphics to do all the heavy lifting. Um, but Michael had a design, um, book he did give to Henry. They had different rules sent out like, no more than three point sizes per page, and you know uh, things about layout, uh, whatnot. Uh, so it is very true to our vision.
0: And it's, I mean, that the vinyl box sold out, right? I mean, pretty quickly for what, whatever that first pressing was, it was, it was gone. Um, were you yeah, expecting f- fifteen
1: hundred of it. Yeah, it's gone. Um, but the, they did repress it. So it's available again. And uh, right. we had a lot of people that uh,
0: and they came like, out on CD too. Shouldn't
1: have fit that it wasn't available on CD. And, you know, some of that's my fault in that when they were asking me for numbers on um, uh, sales and whatnot, um, I couldn't tell them. I could not give them any figures because it had never been given to me of what. Previous sales have been for our band. So uh, it's a very expensive project. It actually just broke even, but the vinyl was available again. We tried to keep the price as low as we could. Um, It was very expensive to produce. So how did the sales
0: of the, you know, the reissued Chomp and Gyrate and the box compare to when these, you know, those records were coming out in the first place?
1: I have no idea because, uh, you know, uh, there was, you know, I hate to say we were taken advantage of, but I think we might have been a little bit at least um, because that happened to most fans in that era. I don't have a clue how many records we saw worldwide, and I never really saw much money from that either. I know at one point label gave me $150 because I was about to starve. And I kept getting that $150 thrown up in my face. Well, we sent you $150. And I'm like, well, thanks a lot. You know, uh, we did really get a lot of um uh, financial support. Um, but it did allow us uh to go out and tour, and uh it did make us uh recognized you know.
0: Back when you were doing Pylon in the first place as this performance art piece that was going to have this little short life, did you ever imagine that, you know, 40 years later, you'd have, you know, a box set of your work and all this demand for it, and that it would also sound really great that many years later? Because you think about like 40 years before that stuff was coming out, and you're talking about like the Glenn Miller Band, you know, like nothing, nothing from like 1939, 1940, Sounded at all contemporary in 1980, but the work you were doing in 1980, 20, 42 later years later, sounds like someone could be doing it now.
1: Yeah, it's kind of interesting, isn't it? And I think it's maybe because we didn't know what the rules were. You know, at the time, I, you know, I'm just going to put it down to that. We didn't know what the rules were. We didn't know we were actually breaking rules. We were just making, you know, some sounds that made us happy.
0: And, and now all these people want to listen to it that much later and paste magazine called you one of the 25 best front front women of all time in 2018
1: <laughs> yeah that's pretty crazy isn't it because <laughs> i see everybody else on the list and they've all got big careers and stuff you know it's like what am i doing on this list you know but thank you paste magazine <laughs> well no because it's because
0: because the work you did was so distinctive and it sounds fantastic so i really appreciate I have a you. bad
1: case of imposter syndrome to be honest
0: <laughs> well you should be over that by now given you know the, the amount of uh, love people are given to the music that you made for over so many years at this point like why did athens produce so much great music
1: The Athens music scene is really still pretty active. Uh, The pandemic uh, put a a damper on everything, but uh, um, we've got bands like Franca. I don't know if you've heard her. Her album, Bell Ringer, is uh, feminist hip-hop. She was a county commissioner. Uh, She's a doctorate, has a doctorate. uh, One of the smartest young women I've ever met. Uh, Her name is Mariah Parker. Um, she's going strong here in Athens Uh, we've got a a lot of younger bands uh, that are coming up that are second generation um, from having parents who were in the music scene um, like uh, Aidy Blanco uh, who is uh, uh, son um, of Bill Berry is in that band uh, um, although they don't really push that at all but um let's see uh immaterial possession um that has the son of uh john fernandez from the elephant six collective right Uh, nolan bennett has uh been active on and off uh, since he was a kid and uh he's the son of cindy wilson Uh, i don't know what he's going to be up to next i think he's in school right now and we have reissues coming out like Love Tractor and uh, Propeller Sound Recordings, which is... Right, I've uh, seen
0: they've done a bunch of those.
1: Yeah, Jefferson Hall's label. And then my husband, uh, his band Squalls have a... uh, It's not a reissue, but a uh, live album coming out on Stolen Bones Records, uh, which is a subsidiary of New West, which is a double live album. They were a wonderful live band. And every single one of those uh, initial pressing are signed by the whole band. Uh, so far, everybody survived. <laughs> so uh, we got everybody who's available um, signed those, and I've helped with that. I've been making uh, some uh, lyric videos for them.
0: So is it just a very creative community there, like supportive? Like what's what's is it something in the water that there's all this good music coming, great music coming out of Athens?
1: I think it's just, um, well, we do have a state school that's larger. So every four years, you've got a turnover of new people, which keeps it fresh. Um, But besides being a college town, uh, there's a really good arts community. And uh, the music uh, scene isn't just confined to downtown. I mean, there continue to be house parties, different places. uh, like, there's even, like, a a punk dive that's on the outskirts of town near the airport called Red Line that I've been to to see some punk bands come from out of town. There's just bare bones, straying operations, mint block place, and they call it Red Line because there's a red line painted down the outside of the building. Hmm. You know, uh, I think that is continuing to be active because of the people who are here. and at uh, one point before the pandemic, uh, somebody told me there were 350 bands here. It's just something that's not, snowballed. Now I'm not saying to move to Athens, you know because you got to get ready for some things. It's not cheap to live here anywhere you know anymore. Uh, we have the same pressure with housing that the rest of the country is facing. Um, where investors come in and buy houses uh, from other places. And then they rent them for a lot of money or, you know, flip them and sell them for a lot of money. So you got to be prepared for that. It's a bit different town, but because we have the people we have here, I think it is still very worthwhile. We also have world-class venues like the 40 rock club and the Georgia theater. Right. And, uh, you know, Atlanta's in striking distance, so it's. I've enjoyed living here. You know.
0: Well, I'll have to make it down one of these days because there's so many, there's so much music that came out of there that I just adore. So, it would be it would be cool to do a little pilgrimage down there at some point, and I'll have to do it when uh, Pylon Reenactment Society is playing, and you'll have to bring Pylon Reenactment Society up to Chicago again.
1: Oh, yeah. I'd like to come up there again. We played up there um, not too long after we got together. uh, We were up there, Um, but uh, I think we played a festival in Detroit called the Barely Human Fest. And uh, the people we were helping us get booked at the time got us a show in Chicago, too. So that was a lot of fun. would love to come back.
0: Yeah, I hope so. Well, congratulations on continuing to, you know, make music and it sounds great. And it was really fantastic talking to you. And I really appreciate you doing this.
1: Sure. It's been a lot of fun. And thank you for having me. Bye-bye.
0: That is all for episode 47 of Carol Pop. Thanks so much to Vanessa Briscoe Hay for sharing her stories and memories of Pylon. The Pylon box, which includes discs of rarities, demos, and live recordings, is available from New West Records on vinyl and CD. The label also has reissued Gyrate and Chomp in multiple formats. If you don't have them, you should. Meanwhile, you can see Briscoe Hay playing shows with Pylon Reenactment Society, especially if you live in Athens. Check the band's website, pylonreenactmentsociety.com, for tour dates as well as links to its new music. Carol Pop is produced by Chris Swake, who makes sure everything is cool. I'm Mark Caro. Please follow me on Twitter at Mark markcaro at m a r k c a r o, and visit the Carol Pop website carolpop.com for posts about music, movies, and food, and also this Carol Pop podcast. Please share, subscribe, and tune in again next week for another Carol Pop conversation. Thanks.